Welcome to the Single Lady Estates podcast. My name is Bobby Wasserman, and I'm the founder of Single Lady Estates. Thank you for spending some of your time with us. Today, we are talking about advocating for yourself when it comes to real estate investments and tenant landlord issues. And we are speaking about both in the broadest of terms, sole and group investments, as well as defining landlord as basically anyone who pays to stay in your home. Currently, women make up only 31% of real estate investors. It's been a slow and steady climb to reach that 31% because it was only 27% in 2010. Interestingly, the average salary of male investors is only 10% higher than women. So real estate investing is certainly within reach for those that are interested. Today, we have real estate investment expert, Alan Siebenhaller, who will talk about women investing in real estate ventures. So if this is something that you have wanted to do, Alan is here to motivate and encourage you. Alan is a partner at Zia Group, a top boutique real estate firm in Santa Barbara, California. The firm has sold over 700 local homes and also has a program to purchase homes for cash for investment purposes. For over 22 years, Alan has been helping investors identify properties and add value through residential and commercial real estate purchases. Alan also has a volunteer track record of helping rebuild urban neighborhoods in Pasadena, California, through racial reconciliation, community engagement, impact, and sustainability. He has also served as an adjunct professor at Pepperdine University. So basically, real estate is Alan's passion. So welcome, Alan. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So Alan, in college, you played NCAA Division I water polo. What led you to a career in real estate? Well, I couldn't get a career in water polo, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) And surfing wasn't really working out either uh, in terms of a career. So I originally pursued accounting. I actually thought I was going to become a CPA. I got in with Ernst & Young out of college and I just quickly discovered it wasn't the lifestyle that I wanted. You know, I saw some of the partners working really, really long hours, especially during tax season and just really kind of being chained to a desk a bit. And I wanted to have a bit more control and also, I guess, financial freedom. And so I read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and that inspired me to pursue real estate. And I decided to start in commercial real estate because I wanted to learn from investors. And so I started 22 years ago working on a a small team of agents in commercial real estate. And that's what launched it. So what made you switch from commercial into residential? So I spent a couple of years in commercial. I, I made very little money starting off. It was hard to get started even on a team in commercial, but I learned a ton. I mean, I was just learning and I knew it. I was just learning this material that was just golden because I'm learning from these people who are buying and selling these large buildings and adding value to them and how to add value to them. And I'd ask a ton of questions. And then as time went by, I had friends that asked me if I would help them buy their first place. And that was residential and I'm not going to turn that down. And so I started doing residential, helping my friends buy their first property. And my wife and I moved into property management to save money 
uh, we started managing apartment buildings in Santa Monica where we'd live in the building and we'd get a reduced rent by living in the building. Eventually we got free rent and we would help manage the building, which was also a golden learning opportunity, learning from the people that owned the building about managing the crews and rent leasing units and fixing up units. And yeah. So then at that point I moved out on my own from the team and I started just on my own doing both residential and commercial. It's really cool. So let's start with some basics of real estate investing. First, what are some different considerations when you're searching for an investment versus your primary home? Yeah, I would say some of the things to consider are, first of all, maybe if we're starting from ground zero, is your primary home can actually be both uh, your primary home and an investment property. So One thing that's becoming popular, it's kind of a term that people are using called house hacking, where you may move into a two unit. It could even be your first property would be a two unit and you rent out one of the units and you live in the other one. The other scenario that is very, very common is maybe you're already in your first home, but you're moving to your second home. And if there's a way you can keep that first home and rent it, that becomes your first investment property. And it's such an easy transition into it because you're moving out of a home that you know really well. You know you know how to maintain it because you've lived there or you possibly already got your connections to your contractors or your maintenance people. And that is also, you know, just a great way to transition into investment real estate. Excellent. For people that are able to do that, what are the financial considerations? If you're running out of space, it's a first home, you want to go into something a little bigger, what would you have to have down, I guess, for that second home? And is there any creative financing you can do because you already own a home? Yeah, there is lots of creative financing things you can do. So if you are moving from your current property into a new property and you're going to, let's say you're going to hold onto your current property and that's going to become your first investment property. And because you're not selling it, you're thinking, and I think this is kind of where your question was going, you're thinking, well, I might not have as much of a down payment because I'm not selling this current home. But because you're buying that second home as a primary home, the lenders will allow you to get in with a lower down payment. Because if it's strictly investment property and you're using a lender, generally they're going to require 20% down. But if it's your primary home, the lenders view that as much less risk. So you could get into that next property for as little as 5% down. Oh, wow. That is great information. That's great information. I used to work with someone and uh, her father said, never sell your home. Once you're getting a home, you never sell it. I would agree with that. Yeah. Generally speaking, how many of us look back if we've owned a home and we sold it and we think, Mm, I wish I would have held on to that, you know, it's worth so much more today than it was, you know, and so I would agree with that. It's a great way to build a portfolio as time goes by is to just try at least your hardest to never sell. There's some exceptions. There's some properties where it's like, yeah, it was wise to sell that one. But generally speaking, I think it's a great idea. So if you're looking for maybe your first primary home or, you know, moving into investments, what are some differences that you might see in a primary home versus an investment home? 
I would say for an investment property, there's a lot of similarities. One thing I've learned is that the location of the investment property will be a primary indicator of how difficult it may be to manage. And I'll give you an example. Okay. I have, I've done this for 22 years. I've invested in nine different states. I have a lot of crazy, crazy stories. The cheapest home I ever bought was $5,000. Oh. And, you know, I would not do that experience again. My, <laughs> my property manager talked me into it. It was in a neighborhood that was a pretty poor neighborhood. It was outside of Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is a great city. I owned other properties in that city. But because of the location, the numbers were fantastic. That's what got me into it. And this can apply to wherever you are, you know, when you're looking at the lower priced properties that the numbers may be fantastic, but depending on the crime rate and other things that may come into factor in that location, it can make managing it a huge drama. And so even though the numbers look fantastic on paper, after things happen, like a drive-by shooting that happened at that mm. property, wow. those numbers no longer look fantastic. You know, <laughs> <laughs> What are some of the most common misconceptions that people have about real estate investing? I think one of the biggest ones, gosh, there's there's a couple are coming to mind. Let's just start with one big one, and that is timing the market. Okay, so timing the market is important. I will say that. But I think some people get caught up so much in this like paralysis of analysis and trying to figure out everything they can about everything to do with the real estate market so that they can just time their purchase perfectly, or they can figure everything out perfectly. And it just doesn't work that way. And what I like to do is when you really develop skills in real estate investing, you can make money in any market investing. You can do well in any market. The way you do it adapts to the market. But I tell people, always be looking. Because the worst case scenario when you're looking at real estate is that you learn something new, right? I mean, you don't have to spend money. It's kind of like shopping, right? You can go shopping, but you don't have to spend. But the great thing about shopping for real estate is you're looking for opportunity where these opportunities can build serious wealth for the future. And if you don't buy, you end up learning maybe a new property or new location, or you you learn something new from the people there that you're asking questions. That's what I love about real estate is it's always a learning opportunity around every corner. And so I think that's a big misconception is is timing and like this paralysis of analysis. And then I think the second maybe biggest one that I'm seeing is that you need a lot of money to do this. You need a lot of money to make moves in real estate. And that's not necessarily true. There's a lot of ways you can learn about creative financing, about seller financing, about possibly having money partners, people in your lives that might have money that would be willing to provide some funds to be somewhat of a financing source for you. There's just so many different strategies that you can learn that overcome this misconception of you have to have a ton of money in the bank to do real estate. That's just not true. That's really good to hear because a lot of people don't have a lot of money in the bank. Right. I, especially here in California, a lot of people have their money in their homes. Yes, exactly. 
And, you know, just one thing that we're experiencing here on the West Coast, everyone's waiting for the market to crash. But it seems that people don't understand there's no inventory. (laughs) So it's, and we are in desperate need of housing. So uh, can you talk a little bit just about that, the current market infatuation with people that are holding off and waiting for this big crash? Yes. I I mean, I personally don't think it's going to come because there's no inventory. Exactly. There is, we have an inventory problem and I'm talking about the inventory problem probably multiple times a day with people. And we have to always shift our mindset to see that when there's problems in the market, that actually creates opportunity if we can find what the opportunity is, right? So there's a lack of inventory. Uh, There's kind of a, a slowdown in the amount of transactions that are happening. And so where is the opportunity in that? And I'm still asking myself that question and I'm discovering as I go. But I will say one thing that I've found is that you can find opportunity in properties that are off the market. Because anyone who's been in real estate for you know a decent amount of time, and I'm, I'm sure you would agree with me here, that we see a fairly decent percentage of transactions happen that don't even hit the market. They don't even come on the internet. You don't see them on the big websites like Zillow and Redfin or whoever. These transactions happen because usually a real estate agent or an investor somehow is finding a seller that is motivated to sell, but for one reason or another, they're not going on the market. It could be because they have a tenant in the property and they don't want the tenant disturbed. It could be because the property's a mess or there was a hoarder in the property. There's a hundred reasons why someone would not put their property on the market. And that creates what I call shadow inventory, an inventory of properties that are in the shadows where transactions are happening. And there are ways to find those properties And that creates an opportunity because now you found a property that no one else knows about, or maybe just a couple people know about, and you might get a good deal. If it becomes a win-win situation for you and for the seller, you've got a deal, right? Those are great to find in this current market. Are they the same as pocket listings? Yes. Okay. Yeah. You can call them pocket listings or off-market properties. There's a bunch of different ways to describe them. Are there like the shadow inventories throughout the country? Yes. Yeah. They're all over the country. I've bought and sold properties in nine different states and a significant percentage of those transactions were off the market. Some of them came through what I call wholesalers. Those are people that, you know, they are advertising out there to buy properties for all cash. And then they sign that contract over to the investor for a fee. Uh, sometimes they come through real estate agents. Sometimes they just come direct. Someone's like, I, I heard that you buy properties or I heard about you and we've got a property over here. And, you know, so there's a bunch of different ways they can come, but that happens all across the country. Are there usually problems with those properties? Sometimes. So the greatest opportunities that I've found almost always have problems and I'm the problem solver. Just a little diversion here. I was just kind of curious if gender or age plays a role in the misconceptions people have of real estate investing. I think the bigger opportunity here to flip that question around is that real estate is such an open playing field. 
you don't have to have a college education. Let me put it this way. Real estate opportunity does not care what gender you are, what age you are, what education you have. It doesn't even care if you have money or don't have money. Real estate opportunity is there for anyone that wants to grow and learn and take advantage of it and overcome their own kind of mental limitations that say that you can't do it. You know, oh, I can't do it because I'm 18 years old or I, or I can't do it because I'm whatever, fill in the blank. The, all yeah. the reasons that we would hear that we can't do it, or maybe someone told us we can't do it. Maybe someone spoke to us and actually said, you, you'll never make it in real estate. Those are the things we have to overcome because real estate is totally an open playing field. It's not like the stock market where you have to get these hard to get licenses and you're heavily regulated by the SEC. Real estate's the wild west. And, yes. and that, that, that does mean, you know, and so we meet a lot of interesting characters because anyone who believes they can do it and learns and has a work ethic to push forward, there is opportunity in real estate for sure. I love that. I love that answer. That's a perfect answer. <laughs> so let's discuss the various real estate investment strategies for residential properties. Maybe there are pros and cons maybe in the order of general popularity or number of HGTV shows on the air, like flipping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that. So real estate investment strategies, like we watch HGTV and we see them do the, the fix and flips. We see them do the buy and holds. Those are probably the two biggest ones, especially the fix and flips, because those are so exciting to watch. The It's all the before and after pictures, right? And right. that's that's one of the things that that I do that's the most fun is is going into a property that's just a mess and then seeing it after and comparing the before and afters is so much fun. But of course, being a TV show, if we're just watching that through a lens, there's so much going on behind the scenes and there's so much drama as well that happens in real estate that we may see or we may not see in that TV show. And the difficulty of it that there's a lot of things that could go wrong. I would say to prevent things from going wrong, a lot of your skills can be developed on the front end of actually the purchase. So there's this saying in real estate that you make your money on the buy, on the purchase. Meaning if you're purchasing the property right and well, then it's going to be a lot easier on the back end someday when you go to sell, right? So building your skills in, in how to look at a property, how to analyze a property and what it's worth, what could be done to the property to increase its value and add value. All of those things are skills that you can develop. You can develop some of them by watching TV, but really getting out there and looking at properties and even studying what other people are doing. I, I've watched flips that other investors have done. I mean, there's some I'm studying right now, these higher end luxury flips. I'm studying some of my colleagues doing these. I'm looking at the befores. I'm looking at the afters. I'm, I'm figuring out what they spent and how in the world they came away with some of them. I've seen them sell them for over a, a million dollars more than what they spent, including the renovation. And I'm thinking, wow, how do I learn from that and get my mind to start thinking bigger? And so really a lot of it is, is the learning, but then it's also implementing what you're learning and maybe just starting where you're at, starting small and there's nothing like learning as you go, right? It's one thing right. to kind of 
one thing to watch or listen to podcasts or, or watch YouTube videos, but when you actually do it yourself, that is going to be the greatest learning curve. So it's really just taking imperfect action is the best way to learn. And then I think with fix and flip, fix and flip is, is a great way to make money, but buy and hold is where you build wealth, in my opinion. Oh, interesting. Um, so talk about buy and hold. Ultimately, from a 10,000 foot view, you mm -hmm. can fix and flip, but fix and flip is it's hard work. And it's, you know, it's a bit of a job, like you're working it, but you're going to make money if you do it well, but that money is not, it's not wealth. You've exchanged time and effort and stress for money. I would call it a, a bit of a job or running your business. Now buy and hold, you're going to just hold onto the property and rent it out. It becomes a bit more passive depending on if you have someone else managing it or if you're managing it yourself. But that becomes a bit more passive and that starts building wealth because that starts putting money back to you every month through through rental income and through the mortgage being paid down and through eventually, hopefully owning it free and clear. So that is wealth building. Fixing and flipping is, is making money and getting capital going, but there is a big difference there. Very interesting and a great distinction. Does there ever become a time where, let's say you want to invest, so you're going for the fix and flip, and then you decide to hold it and it becomes an yeah. income producing property. Yeah. So I have a friend here, a colleague that I've helped coach and partner with, and they bought a flip. I wasn't involved in this transaction, but they bought one that they were turning around and, and they put it back on the market and they couldn't sell it for what they needed to sell it for to make a profit. And so they decided exactly what you just said. They decided, well, let's hold on to it and let's rent it out. And now they've rented it out for the past, gosh, probably three and a half, four years. And mm. you know what's happened in the California real estate market over the past three and a half, four years, oh, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so they are very, very glad that they held on to it and that they didn't sell it. And I don't know their exact numbers, but even if it was just breaking even for them, and it was paying for itself, I mean, they've done well, right? They, yeah. They've gone up in equity. That mortgage is being paid down by the tenant every month. And, you know, it's a great situation. That's an, another nice thing about real estate. As time goes by, it can cover up a lot of things that have gone wrong in the past because real estate is a hedge against inflation. It, it As inflation goes up, real estate goes up. It travels with inflation. So, we are protected in so many ways, and that's why it's such a great long-term wealth-building tool. And what would you say if you're going to hold a property, then you kind of go into the tenant-landlord arena. Talk a little bit about how to be a successful landlord, how to get great tenants. I would say, let's speak first to the people who they're, they're just getting into this. I would say on your first rental property, you want to have experts on your team, right? So I would have someone with property management experience, a property management company, or maybe a real estate agent that does property management, just some sort of scenario where you just have a lot of support and expertise around you. In states like California, we're talking about California, it's a very tenant-friendly state. It's not a landlord-friendly state. And so you want to have a connection with a real estate attorney. We actually just met with our real estate attorneys, our group 
yesterday to go over all the new kind of California tenant laws. And, and they are very mm-hmm. aggressive. And so it's good to have these experts around you and on your team so that you can learn from them. And eventually you may get to the point, because I, I got to the point where I no longer needed a management company. I could actually you know, form my own management company over my properties because I knew enough at that point. But in the beginning, I think you want to rely on experts because it's an area where there is so many moving parts with tenants to think about, to qualify them, to make sure you've got all the legal protections in place. All of that really comes down to having the right people around you. Got it. Can you talk a little bit about the short-term rental market like Airbnbs and VRBOs or similar? Yes. There's a lot of laws around those too. Yes. Yeah. So that scenario can work. It can work great. It actually can work in partnership with with multi-unit properties because I've I've converted some of my units in multi-unit properties to furnished units. I've converted them both into monthly furnished because there's some areas where you're not allowed to do short-term rentals. So you're not allowed to do Airbnb, but you can do a 30-day rental to traveling nurses, for example. So you can furnish your unit. You can still advertise it on Airbnb, VRBO, or there's a there's a website for traveling nurses called Furnish Finders. And you can advertise on these sites and say that it's a minimum 30-day stay. And then you're free from all the Airbnb regulations or the short-term rental regulations. And you can rent that unit for a lot more than you would normally because it's a furnished unit and you have someone who's coming in for anywhere from one to six months. In one of my units, I have a professor. He's in there for the whole academic year with his family. And then that works great. And so you can do it with single family or multifamily. You can do these furnished short-term or what you call midterm. Midterm is like 30 days or more. And they work great. There's a lot of things to think about. Like, is it permitted in the area you're looking in? And how to manage it is a whole nother conversation. You know, so there's other things to look into, but it's very doable and it works really well when you can get those pieces and maybe those team members around you to support it. Yeah. And just a note, like I know there are a lot of changing laws and local areas that have just become these unanticipated Airbnb havens and VRBO havens. And the people who live there year round in those neighborhoods don't like it. They're getting local laws changed. So if your plan is to rent out the unit for less than 30 days or even for more than 30 days, please, please go and make sure you know the regulations and you know about the buzz in the neighborhood, which would be going to like homeowners organizations, going to neighborhood council meetings. These issues usually come up around those meetings and then you'll you'll get an idea and the, kind of the air. Maybe there's going to be regulations the following year. So it might not be something that you would want to get into. I just caution people with that because it can yes. be some great income. Again, like if you have a visiting professor or nurse or even families and you can fill it up in the summer, but if the laws change, you might be put in a bind. Yes. One of the investors that I coach, she's a single mom and she has been investing strictly in 
vacation rental properties. She is in the Midwest and she's targeting areas where exactly what you just said, it's totally permitted. It's allowed. In some of the locations she's in, she does get a permit, but she is not buying the properties. Now here's where incredible creativity comes in in real estate. She's not purchasing the properties she is doing what's called, you know, a short-term rental arbitrage. So basically she's approaching a landlord. She actually approached me. That's how I met her on one of my, in one of my properties. She approaches the landlord and says, Hey, can I rent out one of your units? I provide furnished and corporate housing to people and I furnish the unit and I will pay you your full rent upfront. And I think even maybe she offered a little bit more than what I was asking in rent. And I have references and all of this and basically described her program and her company. And what she does is then she rents the unit and she'll furnish it. And then she'll go and turn around and rent it on Airbnb, VRBO with my permission. I So you have to find a landlord that's open to that. And then she is able to make the profit in the middle without even buying the real estate. Oh, wow. And I just thought that was fascinating. And she has like 16 of them. And so oh my God. I, uh, an incredibly creative, she just thinks outside the box. I've even done it before in a property I was in that we were in a house uh, a while ago that we were renting as a family and it had a studio, a separate studio that went with the house. And we weren't using the studio except when my parents kind of came in town and that sort of thing. I the studio, I furnished it. And when it, when we weren't using it, I just started renting it out. And it wasn't a property that I had purchased. It was just a property that I was renting and I had a, a few years lease on it. And so I was able to do that and then cover a significant percentage of my rent just by renting out that studio. Hmm. And that's very common. There's of course a whole way to do that so that you're doing it in a way that's compliant and above board. But when people are renting these units through, let's say Airbnb is the biggest one, you know, mm-hmm. there's a million dollars insurance that goes into play to cover that rental that happens, oh. their stay. So Airbnb backs it with an insurance policy. There's other sites that you can use different types of insurance policies. So it's insured. And my experience has been that my tenants that come for short term, those units have had less wear and tear than my tenants who have been long term. So in other words, if I have two units side by side, one was rented all year long short term, and one was rented all year long long term, the one long term 90% of the time has much more wear and tear and maybe even damage to it than the one that was short term. Yeah, I know that that's a misconception. A lot of people think short term units get trashed. I actually have a YouTube video where I reacted to Dave Ramsey because he said that short-term units get trashed. And that after probably doing a thousand short-term stays over the past decade, hosting a thousand short-term stays, I would totally disagree with that. I've actually found the opposite (laughs) to be true. Great. Maybe you can talk about some of the challenges of landlord-tenant relationships and how you protect yourself without spending all your profit on attorney fees. Yeah. Well, screening is, of course, key. You know, you want to screen heavily. We're doing your typical credit check, application check, job check. We want to see a copy of their pay stubs. 
We do a social media check. So we'll check everything we possibly can. Previous landlord, if they previously live with their parents, then you know that's not going to work. But if if we can get any of their previous landlords, that's really valuable to find out if they paid rent on time. We'll just screen as heavily as possible. When talking about women in investing, uh, in real estate investing, what do women need to know generally about landlord relationships? Because the big thing with women is, you know, we want to be safe. Safety issues is a huge one. The other thing is if you're a real estate agent, there's a lot of training in this department, you know, to never like, you know, to never be showing the property just on your own or just when you're doing even open houses, you usually have someone else there. People always know where you are. You know, there's all kinds of safety precautions to be aware of. I would tell my leasing agents when they're leasing apartments, I would say, don't go into the apartment to show it by yourself with someone coming to see it. The first thing I want you to do is take a photocopy or picture of their ID. If they don't have an ID, they do not see a unit, right? There Um, you go. So we, we, we take a picture of their ID so they know we know exactly who they are. And then we can send them to the unit. Oh, it's unit, you know, 32. It's open. Go ahead, take a tour, come back and, you know, let me know what you think. You, you can discuss it outside. You don't have to go in the unit with them. So there's just a lot of different things to think about for sure. Okay. So Alan, what are some of the current trends in real estate and how are those trends impacting investment opportunities? Yeah. So the current trends right now, I mean, the big one is interest rates, right? Are higher than they've been. There was a very aggressive increasing the Fed declared war on inflation and has increased interest rates. And so that has caused all kinds of ramifications. I don't think it quite worked out the way the Fed was hoping it would because What's happened is people have just decided, well, we're not going to sell because we're locked into a 3% interest rate. And if we buy, we're going to be in a much higher interest rate. And there's still people needing to buy. And so it's created this like even lower inventory of real estate and still a decent amount of buyers, some of which if you're in certain states like California or some other states, a lot of those buyers are using a significant amount of cash. Maybe they're selling a property and they're wanting to buy. And so they're not as affected by the interest rates because they're not going to be financing as much of the purchase. So we have this demand, but really, really low inventory. And that's just created kind of a weird environment, but there's definitely opportunity in it. But that's been probably the most impact in terms of something that's affected the real estate market has been interest rates and low inventory. Okay. What about partnering and investing with a group of people that you already know? Is that a do or a don't or what parameters uh, should people put around that? It's a great possibility. It comes with a lot of potential challenges, right? So the possibilities are almost endless in terms of like partnering up with people, whether that means you're going to have a property where maybe it's a property where multiple families or multiple people can live together and Mm -hmm. go in and co-ownership on that property. Or maybe it's uh, an investor like me who has other investors that are private money sources. So they have money, but they don't 
have the time or maybe the expertise to invest and they want to make a return so I can take their money and put it to work. So those situations and all kinds of possibilities in between can work, but with that comes a lot of things to think about, right? So one thing to think about is usually when you're doing a real estate transaction, well, pretty much always, it's a big commitment and you're getting into a big commitment with another person. And so you want to probably have some sort of legal advice that's going on with how that's going to work if things go wrong. Depending on how well you know this person, you may want to have some sort of a screening process or things can get complicated, but you can always find ways to, first of all, set as much of the expectations up front as you can. And yeah, with in my, writing, in writing, in writing, <laughs> absolutely in writing and with probably some legal counsel, Yeah, but setting those expectations. And then usually what I'm trying to do in my business is I'm trying to set expectations at a level where I'm pretty confident I can exceed the expectations that I'm setting because I want to lead people with an experience where they actually got more than they even expected they were going to get. But at least if I know that I can get them what they're expecting, then it's a win-win situation. And so it's always a juggling act, but it is very doable and it's very common in real estate. So you've been extremely generous with your time. So I wanted to kind of wrap things up And if there are three tips that you can leave with our audience on real estate investing from a position of strength, what would you want people to know? Yes. So real estate investing from a position of strength. I would say there's two things in real estate that would actually give you a position of strength. Maybe two of the bigger things, let's say, in real estate. One would be your mindset. And we talked a little bit about that earlier. So your mindset meaning being able to overcome the limiting beliefs that are coming against you, saying that you can't do this because, you can't do this because you don't have enough money. You can't do this because you don't have enough experience. You can't do this because you might make some mistakes. You can't, you know, fill in the blank. There's always these reasons in our head that say we can't do this because whatever that reason is. And I would say if you can push through those and find people in your life that help you push through them, right? That encourage you. That will definitely give you a position of strength and resilience to be able to push through all kinds of things that go wrong or challenges that come at you. I would say the second position of strength in real estate is to have money set aside. Then you can also come into real estate from that position of strength that you have a little bit more leverage And maybe you don't have to rely as much on the creative solutions. But I will say that even for the bigger investors, cash in real estate goes quickly. So almost all investors that are experienced in real estate, uh, let me say a larger percentage of them use forms of other people's money. They use bank financing, they use partners, they use investors, they use all these things because even if you have a bunch of cash, it can go very quickly, right? <laughs> in into real estate, then you don't have cash. And you always want to have reserves as well for when things go wrong. So you have to be careful with that. But I would say both having some cash reserves and maybe also the ability to find financing and growing in your ability to get financing 
is a position of strength. Excellent, Alan. Thank you so much for your time, for your insight. This has just been great information, and it really allows people to at least start thinking about investing in real estate, how to position yourself for success. Are there any final thoughts, and where can people find you? People can find me on Linktree. My nickname's Al Siebes, so Linktree, L-I-N-K-Tree.com slash A-L-S-I-E-B-S, Al Siebes. I'm on YouTube, youtube.com, Al Siebes, and was so honored to be invited and be a part of this. And you can tell I love talking about real estate. So (laughs) thank you for having me. Thank you all for listening to the Single Lady States podcast. To learn more about what Alan discussed and to join our community, go to singleladiestates.com, connect and engage with our community, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Have a great day, everyone.